how does somebody born in Queensland, sunny Queensland, get into winter Olympic sport skeleton racing? Matter of fact, what is skeleton racing? And how does an Australian become world-class in it? And what goes into winning Australia's first ever sliding medal at the 2022 Winter Olympics? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Olympic silver medalist in the skeleton, Jackie Narricott. Jackie Narricott made history this year, becoming the first ever Australian to win an Olympic medal in a sliding sport, which includes activities such as the bobsleigh or the luge, when she secured a silver medal in women's skeleton on the Ice Dragon course at the Yangjing National Sliding Centre in the 2022 Winter Olympics. It was not only a momentous moment for the 31-year-old, but also Australia, her medal lifting the nation's total in Beijing to four, the highest total Australia has ever achieved at a Games of the Winter Olympiad. In conversation with ESPN's Marissa Lordanik, the Queenslander discussed her journey to becoming the second-best women's skeleton racer in the world, as well as the difficulties associated with competing in a Winter Olympics in the midst of what was a global pandemic, her long and arduous journey to the top in a sport that exists very much below the radar in Australia, and much more. But first, she reflected on making history for Australia. Yeah, that was, I entered the, it hadn't, wasn't in the history books, and then did it twice in two weeks, which was <laughs> insane. It's an incredible achievement, but obviously it didn't happen overnight. It's not like you just rocked up in Beijing and thought to yourself, I'm going to win a silver medal today. So let's go right back to the beginning. You're a very proud Queenslander. You've grown up a Queensland kid, obviously very different climate to, to someone who now competes in winter sports. Australia has no skeleton training programs or facilities for you to be able to train and do what you do so how do you actually get from Queensland to an Olympic silver medal okay so I was a sprinter and long long jumper growing up had dreams of going to the summer Olympics with my my uncle Paul was the first Aussie to go with the summer and the winter Olympics so there was that in my head Sydney had had the Olympics right that that's what I'm going to be and then having uncle Paul being a bobsledder so the the winter Olympics was always kind of in the back of my head is like "Eh, one day I'll try bobsled Got that chance in uh, November of 2011, final year at uni, went overseas. I'd n- never met the driver who was putting my life in her hands. Tried bobsled. And before I'd even got like set foot on the ice, I met our skeleton coaches who were like, you're too small to be a bobsledder, which is true even now. Um, spent two and a half months around Europe trying to train bobsled, which was fun. Then curiosity got the better of me. And in March 2012, I went over to the US. Tried skeleton from halfway down the track and went, that's it, I'm done. I'm switching sports after like two runs. I'm glad you mentioned your Uncle Paul because he's come up a lot in kind of the telling of your story. And I'm really curious because obviously we can't, it's your career, we can't thank him for your career. But do you think you would have still ended up within the bobsleigh and then the skeleton kind of family if he didn't make that switch would you have been exposed to that sport without him doing it first I think possibly because as a kid growing up whenever it was too wet outside we'd watch cool runnings so I I always knew what bobsled was but I think having that family connection there 
definitely made the idea a lot less crazy than to someone who has never seen snow, doesn't have that family connection. I love that you mentioned Cool Runnings because I feel like every kid who has ever watched that has thought to themselves, I could do that, maybe, like, I don't know, it could be interesting. But let's actually talk about the sport of skeleton because it is, from a, an outsider's perspective, it's, it's a bit insane. It's a bit nuts. It was a sport that was deemed too dangerous to actually run. So for 54 years it wasn't running at the Olympics. Women were banned from competing because old-timey medicine thought it was going to give them breast cancer or move their ovaries or their uteruses or something else kind of insane. But what about it got you hooked and has kept you hooked for a good decade now? It's fun. So coming from the from bobsled where I was I was a brakeman, so I couldn't see a thing. I just pushed off, get the sled, head between knees, see how you go. Whereas skeleton, I'm in control. I can see where I'm going for the most part. <laughs> um, and it's just... The, the rush when it goes well, you kind of feel, feel like you're flying a little bit. And yeah, it's just so much fun. It, when you describe it like that, it does sound fun, but also, you know, was Googling about the sport and what it's like. So you're traveling headfirst for starters down an ice track, hitting 130, 140 kilometers per hour. You've got five Gs pressing down on you. Can you actually? describe what that feels like or can you liken it to something else or do, where do you feel it in your body how can you actually like tangibly describe it for someone who's probably never going to to race skeleton so the g-force bit um kind of like when you're on a, on a roller coaster and um that initial acceleration where your head gets pushed back into the seat it's like that but the opposite so my head's getting pushed into the ice and you do like there, there's no way of, of moving it so that that's kind of what 5g, 5G feels like i tend to feel it more more through my head and my neck than I, than anywhere else um i think that's just because of the, the, fact, the fact that your face gets slammed into the ice and then listening to kind of or reading about how you actually kind of maneuver yourself it seems very um almost poetic and subtle considering it looks a bit you know, it's very quick, ideally not rough, but the way you actually manoeuvre yourself on the track does, is way more subtle than what the sport seems. Does that make sense? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So when it's done properly, it should look like we are not steering at all. Okay. Like the, the movements of our shoulders and our knees and, our head, and ideally not our feet, but sometimes our feet are so subtle that it's really only little tiny body movements that get the sled going through a corner the way we want to, we want to move, go through the corner. And it's, it's a bit of a dance with, you're, you're, trying to, you're not trying to dictate to the track. You're trying to work with the track. Um, the, they, those runs where you're working with it and working with the sled are the ones that tend to be the, the best ones. What is it about speed and going fast that you love so much? Cause obviously it's something that you, you need to love to do a sport like this. Yeah, you, you do need to love it. And it's it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. The, the first time you go through the really big high G corners can be a little bit uncomfortable. So you either love that or you hate it, <laughs> but you, you can learn to love it. Um, the speed, it's just such a, a freeing feeling because you're going faster than you can drive cars legally in most countries. And you've, you've got control over that for the most part. So it's, 
it's it's a surreal feeling and if you ever get a chance to try it I highly recommend it I was gonna say I'm really curious what's what's your mind like during the race are you is it kind of maybe an internal monologue like we've got to do this we've got to do that or is it more a kind of quiet zen-like state or is it different race to race no, for on race day, it tends to be a very quiet zen-like race, zen-like state. Um, I found that the more I think, this this well in general, the, the more you're thinking about things, mm-hmm. the slower your reaction. So you're then reaction, you're then reacting stuff instead of being uh, smooth and flowy and just letting what letting things happen to you. Then you can re- then you can better set yourself up to go to go through corners. Where if you're constantly thinking, at least for me, then by the time you've thought about it, you're into the next corner. So you're already behind. And you lose a little bit of that, that flow and the ability to work with the sled. You've been doing this for a little while now. Are you still scared when you start a race or before a race when you're kind of ready to go at the start at the top of it? I've only been scared once. And that was actually my first run back after my last concussion, which was quite bad. That was a career defining (laughs) moment, hence being scared. But for the most part, um there's there's nerves so race day nerves this year in particular has been more uh apparent than than any other year um and then there's certain tracks so whistler in canada which is the fastest track in the world and then the track in east Ge- well what used to be eastern germany called altenburg um which is notorious for hurting people so you, you know saying at the top of those tra- two tracks that you need to be 100 percent focused on what you're about to do not what's going on behind you or <laughs> what happened to, like the night before um, but in terms of being scared, yeah, like a couple of times and that, that tends to come from not being prepared and not knowing how to get yourself out of, out of situations that could be painful. Would it be fair to say almost that there's no time to be scared because your mind has to focus on other things? It doesn't have like the the space to actually be worried about what you're going to do or have, have any sort of fear? Pretty much, yeah. If, if you're scared, it's probably not the sport for you. Let's talk a little bit about, again, how you've gotten to this point. Because as I said earlier, there's no facilities, there's no training program. There was one or they tried to get something going here. It didn't really work out. So it's a sport where you you can represent Australia, but you can't really train or get better in Australia. You've spoken about the sacrifices that you you need to make to kind of have a career in this sport. So can you talk me through them a little bit, the sacrifices over this kind of decade that you've had to make to get to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So back on the, the Aussie program, we had a program from 2006 through to 2014 and the, the girls were good. They won World Cup medals, um, but unfortunately the results in Sochi, so in 2014 at the Olympics, didn't quite go to plan which was my second season on ice. So I had, I had a couple of seasons with a bit of a program around me and then we lost everything. So that is all the funding, all of the coaching, all of the support just ripped out from underneath me, which uh, second year slider, good timing. Um, I went on to World Cup tour, onto the World Cup tour, having my third season on ice without a coach and without any funding. So that was a great idea. Um, the 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 lack of funding has been an issue but thankfully since 2018 the Olympic Winter Institute has come on board so they've given me a bit more funding but bank and mum and dad <laughs> have been awesome and then the sac- like I think the biggest sacrifice is time away from home so when I was still living in Oz 
I'd leave home end of September, first week of October, get home mid-March, have a couple of weeks off, do it all again, trying to, to work a part-time job to try and fund some of it. But then there's that balance between trying to be a full-time athlete and working in retail or working in hospitality, which is not great for someone who spends a lot of time like, sprinting. Um, and then when COVID hit, I, so I'd already planned to move to the UK, but we were supposed to come home for Easter, see family. COVID kind of changed everything with, with lockdown. And it's the same for everyone around the world. Um, it was not the most fun time, to put it lightly. <laughs> um, and then the, the World Cup season for me, I was going to be on tour in a rapidly changing environment on my own. So I decided that I'd do one World Cup because we had to tick the uh, eight races uh, qualification criteria for the Olympics. And then I got on a plane and went to Korea, spent two weeks in proper hotel quarantine, which I'm sure there are many Aussies who have experienced that. <laughs> so much fun over Christmas and New Year and spent three months sliding again without a coach um, in in Korea because it was the best place that I found for me to be able to be in a semi-stable environment and slide and just get better. I think it, it it paid off in the end. This year has been been a bit better having to being able to able to go out on tour. Europe's a lot more relaxed from a COVID point of view than what Oz was. But then China was crazy. <laughs> we spent three weeks in China for the test event in October and Everyone was in hazmat suits. We couldn't leave the, the compound. It was a uh, hotel track, back to the hotel, that was it. And then trying to get into the Olympics, there were certain, uh, the, the testing criteria was a lot stricter than, any, than anywhere else. So people who were, who had had COVID were coming in and were testing positive. So it was just a nightmare. It, it doesn't sound fun. It sounds like hotel quarantine on steroids, but at least you kind of get to do what you love in between. But everything besides that time on the track does not sound like a fun time. But when it comes to, I suppose, the sacrifices and just how hard it's been, you've obviously had to deal with injury as well beyond just the, the funding issues, the coaching, all of that stuff. You've had to deal with injury as well and the concussion in 2019 is it fair to say that maybe that was the hardest or lowest point of your career? Oh, easily. That was that was my third concussion, and it very well could have been the end of my career. Was that? Did you? How seriously were you kind of considering walking away? Was it a, a real kind of line ball decision almost, or was there still a bit left in you? So from a mental point of view of me thinking I could achieve more that that was definitely there but my sports psych and I had a had a very serious conversation in about July being like okay what happens if I get to Whistler which, which was where I was starting again and I get off the sled and I'm dizzy like at, at what point do we then call it quits and I was prepared to call it quits after my first couple of runs I knew I had to get back on the sled so I got the all clear this all happened in the January I got the all clear in the in the in the June and we then had to wait another four months to get actually back on ice so much fun but yeah it was I was prepared to call it quits I had my parents and my husband being like we need you healthy this is not worth your brain 
there is more to life than being an athlete. So if you go to Whistler and you're okay, great. If you go to Whistler and you're not okay, then you have to seriously consider calling it quits. At the National Curriculum, we always say availability is the best ability. That's why the National Curriculum is now available on ESPN, wherever you get your podcasts. No ticker, Nick. No ticker. It's a really scary thing to think about because we already know, obviously, in many of the footy codes and stuff, we don't know a whole heap about concussion and what it can actually do an athlete. So how much was that weighing on your mind and does it still weigh on your mind? Is it still something that you think about and factor in when you are racing? Definitely. Um, it was it was scary and it's, it's on my mind every single time I, I, I go down the track. I am super vigilant now as to whether as to how my head is feeling and if I don't feel okay then I don't care where we are. I'm not sliding. Qualifications for the Olympics might have been a different story <laughs> but thankfully we didn't get to that point. I think what bugs me the most about it all though is the, and I've said this to our international governing body, is that the ice is the single biggest thing that has an impact on our head. Like we do all the, all the neck training, all the rest of it. But if it's, if the track's bumpy, that's what does it. Like it's not, it's not the big crashes. It's at least for us, it's the minute vibrations on a daily basis at high G at high speed that's what that's what causes all, all of our concussion it's it's one of those things where I feel like um post-mortem of obviously much older athletes looking at their brains and getting to actually see the effects because we've seen it I think in uh, NFL and hockey athletes those uh, athletes who have eventually passed away and donated their brains the they don't look like brains are meant to look. So it's a, a really scary thing that we'll, we'll move on from because we'll talk about some happier things like 2022. It feels like it's been just the best year for you and that starts at St. Moritz with the, the World Cup win. So tell me a little bit about that and why that was such an important win for you. St. Moritz was the best in so many ways so first of all it's one of my favorite tracks it's everyone's favorite track because it is natural and it's sliding through a forest and you don't get any of the vibrations that you get on the normal tracks and and it being the birthplace of our sport so there was that side of things it was also the first world cup that my husband was coaching me for and it's a very similar dynamic to beijing that uh the same race is slightly different every year because they they uh recut the corners every single year so we had to figure it out on the fly really quickly to figure out how to go fastest. And we knew we were gonna to have to do the same thing in Beijing. So to be able to tick that box and like, okay, we worked this track out faster than anybody else did. The equipment worked. I got my headspace in a position where I've been trying to get it for so long. <laughs> Everything just came together and it felt normal. I'm curious, you said your, your headspace was in a in a good spot in a good position what do, what does that mean where was it and then where did you get to this good place what was this good place so this good place is a, I was just calm I was having fun I wasn't worried about what anybody else was doing it was just okay what do I need to do right now to be the best I can be and I was just I was in the moment nothing there was no other thought process about okay well if this then that it was just 
okay, I'm doing this. I need to warm up now. And we just, I just, I just went through, went through the plan. But that came from finally letting go of the need and the want to medal. I've been trying to medal on World Cup for years, and I've not always not been capable of it. But I finally just let go of that idea that my career was somehow going to be worse for the fact that I didn't medal. Instead of being like, okay, you've survived a lot. <laughs> that stuff that should have kept like, kicked you out of the sport to even get here. Be at that point, I knew I was going to be a two-time Olympian. It was it was still a good career, and so I think it was that allowed that final little bit of tension that was obviously still in my body to relax and then all of a sudden it just started to flow would it be fair to say your why changed like the reason why you were racing changed slightly it wasn't so outcome focused medal focused winning focus it changed a little bit is that a fair thing to say to, to an extent yeah I think I'd, I'd gotten at least consciously gotten over the whole need to medal and it was a, particularly this year. It was, it was a process of getting me to Beijing in the best case, best position I possibly could have been in. But yeah, just that. Let's let's see what the potential is. You know, you can do this. Just go and have some fun because it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> and yeah, they that that taking out that that one little thing, absolute game changer. Let's talk about Beijing now. So. Take us through it because I think a lot of people are curious from the COVID perspective, how we do major international tournaments in COVID circumstances, but also then your race days, your races, and how you end up eventually with a medal around your neck standing on that podium, uh, a silver medalist. Okay, from a COVID point of view, we were, by the sounds of it, a little bit more lucky than the guys in Tokyo. So we had a bit more freedom than they did. However getting into China was the issue so um, we had to do PCR tests at 30 days pre-departure 16 days pre-departure that was an AOC thing just to see if things were going to be difficult then we had to have another one at 96 hours pre 72 hours pre and the 72 hour test had to be done by a Chinese embassy recognized place which for us meant a six hour round trip just what you want three days before you're getting on plane um we were on a charter flight from London via Zurich, landed, um, masks and standard plane stuff really. Then airport was immigration checks. It was just us in, like they had the section of an entire terminal was just for people coming in for Beijing. Another PCR test where they rammed it so far up your nose, like brain, <laughs> everyone, came, everyone came out of it crying. An improvement on, on October. So there was that. And then once we got to the village, it was daily PCR tests and uh, daily health monitoring. And that was from a COVID point, that was kind of it. There was like people obviously in hazmat suits, or at least our version of hazmat suits. Uh, masks, uh, if you were in your room, yeah, you had to have a mask on. And uh, gloves in, in, the, in the dining. And then from a performance point of view, so we decided that we weren't gonna eat in the dining hall the AOC set us up so that we had uh, complete access to whatever food we needed in our little bubble. The, the mountain village had a, uh, had a dietitian who was cooking for them three meals a day, which was unreal. Our village was the smallest, so it was freeze-dried meals that my dietitian and I had tested in China previously. So we knew they were, they were gonna work and it was just a nice little bubble to keep 
doing the key to the plan and everything thankfully <laughs> worked out quite well despite the fact that two days out from the race so the final day of training did not go to plan I'd ha- I had sh- like terrible runs questioning everything but thankfully <laughs> we got to a race day like no let's go like I'll be fine and then race day like we've spoken about the actual sport itself and how you do it and consistency seems to be the big key so what was race day like what was your mindset like what were you thinking as you're you're doing your four runs um I was very fortunate that my sprint coach as well and my sports like were actually and on my husband were like you don't need to do anything different today does not demand perfection today today just demands the best you can put down and be consistent. doesn't matter if it doesn't have to be like a three second track record. It has to be good enough. So I was, I was relaxed and having fun. And it was, I think it might've put a few people off. Cause I, I, I was nervous, but I wasn't, I was probably the least nervous for the Olympics than what I had been all season, which is, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was just fun. It also helped. I think that, well, depending on what you believe my start number was number 18 which was my grandmother's birthday um and their wedding anniversary and she passed away two days before our wedding so like well it's a good omen (laughs) well we'll we'll run with that and everything just I know it sounds silly it just it just clicked and it was one of those like it was two of those days where I had runs that runs that, that were good and I, I knew they were quick I didn't, didn't realize at the time that they were as quick as what they actually were which was fun and then between the biggest challenge was always going to be the time difference between runs run two and run three there was a 36 hour break essentially between that and which is unheard of so trying to keep my brain occupied and not thinking okay well I'm here now just trying, trying to keep it from getting getting too far ahead so I got like 3D puzzles and Lego and had a nap, <laughs> trying anything to keep my brain off what was going on. We also tried to avoid any live TV because obviously we knew that when, given I was sitting in first, suddenly everyone was like, she's a gold medal, like gold medal contender. We're going to win our first medal. All of that kind of hype. And we're like, I don't need to see any of that. <laughs> That's going to make it worse. Just dial back and we really kind of went into our, into our bubble, which helped. You've mentioned him a couple of times, so I'm curious, how important is your husband, Dom, to this story, not only as your husband, but as your coach? Massively. He, I think he's the difference. So he, for context, uh, won a medal, won bronze in Pyeongchang in skeleton for the Brits. So he's British, unfortunately, but <laughs> we've, we've adopted him now. It's fine. He looks far better in green and gold and everyone told him that. Um, I just... So from the so he's one of the best people in the world at reading the ice and what that then means from a equipment point of view and also from a, a steering point of view, like how we need to need to get through the corners. So that was why I pushed so hard to have him there from that point of view. It then also had the unintended benefit with COVID of having a family member by my side. No one else had family. No one else had like we we all had friends because we're we're all we're all friends, but just to have that real close emotional support was huge as I say and then speaking of family you were really excited because once the Olympics were done you got to 
go home and see your family. So how has that been? Has that just been joyful? Have you been talking about the Olympics a lot or is it more just catching up with people you haven't seen in years? Um, a little bit of both. The, the first week I was home was chaotic with the, the amount of media that they wanted. And also um, the amount of media that mum and dad were doing too, which was nuts. <laughs> but I finally got to meet my two-year-old nephew and he's such a little cheeky kid. But he's so much fun to have around. And my brother and sister-in-law were actually living with my parents because they've just moved up from Canberra. So we've all been in the one house, which has been good. It's just, I went hiking with my best mates and that was just like, nothing had changed. It's been two and a half years, but it, it could have been two days, which is really nice. That's so nice to hear. I'm curious, we'll, we'll stay kind of in Australia, but also the future so what's next for you because I think it's a pretty common thought that normal people like me have once an Olympics is done whether that be summer or winter a Paralympics whatever it is and the eyes of the world kind of turn away from these athletes and what they're doing what are you doing when no one's watching does the kind of like is there a big lever that you pull in immediately it's the the next Olympics it's 2026 that's what you're focused on what are you actually doing now that the games are done Right now, it's about time off. It's been a long four years to get to this point. So now I just want to have a, have a break. And this time of the year, is no, it's normal for us to have a break anyway. We'd, we wouldn't be sliding. It's, it's, it's our off season. So get back into training, kind of end of April, beginning of March, uh, May, and see how the body feels. My head feels good, uh, which is, I think, the biggest thing at the moment. And while that feels good and I still love it, we'll keep going. For me, being 31, I think it's more of a well like the, Milan is tempting to, to have a, like to have a normal Olympics again and in Milan that place is going to be stunning <laughs> um, but if, usually usually for me anyway it's, it's a year-by-year year proposition so we're like we have world champs every year so okay well building up for for St. Moritz uh, which is the next ones and then Lake Plus in the U.S. have the one after that so it's a it's a year-by-year year thing and then a couple of years out from Milan then we'll look to put things in place so that equipment wise and body wise and that tends to be more of a two-year thing but first year of the quad it's a we can breathe again let's go back have some fun take the pressure off and slowly build it back up again you mentioned it kind of in the media after you immediately won about how you'd love to see more girls get involved in skeleton so what would you actually like to see improved or changed so that there is more girls, there's more kids able to even just try out the sport. And, you know, so then we get to a stage where maybe you aren't the only Australian sliding medalist. You're, you're someone's inspiration. Some 10-year-old kid has watched you do it and then wants to replicate what you've done. So what would you like to see improved and changed from an Australian perspective? Development and talent ID. I've, I spoke to our CEO today, like whatever funding we get from my medal, I can fend for myself with, with the funding that, that I know is coming for me. I want the extra stuff to go towards development because we don't have a development program anymore. And we need to get kids or teenagers probably more so um, on ice and to have the funding there so that they don't have to fork out the, the initial step of getting overseas. Okay, okay, well, ideally, let's say fund your first development camp which is like the, the sliding school. So, so you learn how to slide, you learn what it's all about, whether you like it or not. We'll fund that and then 
you go from there just to because I think the harder thing for us is getting kids on a plane to even try the sport or better yet well actually in addition to that a push track Queensland's quite really becoming the head of the home of winter sport and we've got the space up here like a push track is only kind of 30 or 40 grand we don't need a nice house we just need a tartan track with a couple of rails and a sled it's all we need then you can get kids to try a whether they like going head first because you, you end up loading on it and also see, see whether they can push because pushing's probably i think in skeleton it's probably 60 40 driving to push whereas in bobsled it's much more getting geared towards the pushing but to see whether these, like these kids can transfer the last question I have is one I was thinking about while I was researching you and obviously Australia has a great Olympic history both in the winter and the the summer Olympics how would you like your medal to be remembered because we know there's a lot of great stories and like almost folklore around your Stephen Bradbury's and your Kathy Freeman's how would you like your medal to be remembered I hadn't thought about that um Kind of along the sense that, like the whole never giving up story, because there were so many things looking back that should have kicked me out of the sport, that just didn't because of the, the I, part of that I guess is the the drive that I had and that being internal. But there's there's enough Olympic stories and kids who want to be Olympic athletes that I think give up, and girls especially in those late teenage years where it all gets too hard and things it's suddenly not not so cool so I'd like it to be an inspiration to kids who are maybe going through that bit who go okay well there's light at the end of the tunnel it's gonna suck (laughs) and there's gonna be more more hard days than than good but if you stick at whatever it is you happen to to love doing you will come out the other side it may not be how you dreamt it because mine definitely was not how I dreamt it but that's a good thing. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Indeed, a message of inspiration from Narakot ending that chat as she prepares to enjoy some well-deserved time off. And who knows what next, but I'd have to agree with her that an Olympic Games in Milan, hopefully sans pandemic, has to be a tantalising prospect. But for now... I'd like to thank you for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead, this time for a conversation between Marissa Lodanik and Winter Olympic silver medalist Jackie Narracott. I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a reminder, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and all of ESPN's collection of podcasts and audio goodness wherever you do so happen to get your podcasts from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead or any of those other podcasts, be sure to subscribe, leave one of those famous five-star reviews and help spread the word. But anyways, thanks for listening today, tomorrow, or whenever you happen to be tuning in. And do not fret, as I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into the world of sports as ESPN takes you beyond the lead very soon.